0: This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Broge. Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll free 877 87-924-7980. Now let's
1: join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener for the next hour, We'll be taking people's questions. You can email them uh, here in the studio, and that address is TBL for the Bible line, tbl at net. You can call here locally. Again, the number is 843-525-1859 or toll-free 877. The call letter is WAGP 980. When you call, you can dictate your answer if you want to remain totally anonymous, or you can go on the air if you're more comfortable doing that. We're happy to receive your questions about God's Word or a ministry challenge or family issue that you want biblical counsel on. So let's go ahead and we'll jump right in this morning with both feet, Rick, and get started.
0: All right, uh, Pastor Carl, our first question is appropriate as we are acknowledging the Sanctity of Life Month in uh, January. Placido from Wittonsville, Massachusetts writes First of all, will babies and unborn babies and children be raptured? And secondly, will the unborn babies of unbelievers be raptured? In other words, when the rapture occurs, will a pregnant unbeliever all of a sudden cease to be pregnant because her baby was taken by the Lord?
1: Well, it's a good question. And there's a couple different scenarios and pictures that people have painted. Um, Obviously, uh, with uh, pregnant women, uh, some have said all pregnant babies will be raptured because believers are unbelievers, because the little children are not accountable. And so, you know, there was a popular book series that was done some years ago, a series of novels, and the basic argument was that all the maternity wards and hospitals will be empty for, for months, uh, that for nine months there'll be no babies born in America or anywhere else in the world. That's the position they took. Others argued, well, the babies of believers only. It's inconceivable to me if a woman was born again, that she would be raptured and somehow her baby would be left behind. I'm assuming they would both go up and even the little baby in the womb, whether it was uh, three days old or three months old or right ready to give birth, that that child would be translated as would the mom. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily unreasonable and without biblical precedent to think that the babies of unbelievers could be left behind. Even their small children uh, who technically are not uh, accountable, uh, but still they could be left behind. I mean, just think about it for just a moment. God in biblical history has allowed children to suffer Uh, not because he finds some enjoyment in that, but I'm sure God uses it. I mean, think about even the little babies in Bethlehem that Herod uh, destroyed. How many? We don't know, but based on the size of the town, it could have been as high as 50. Some think maybe a dozen. We don't know, but there was a lot of sadness in that little village as a result of uh, what transpired that night. And certainly, you know, there were little children when Jericho was attacked, that suffered greatly. And there are times in human history where that just happens. Uh, The fact that people have experienced, you know, historical judgment, though, even children doesn't mean automatically that they come under damnation and not to mention it is a seven year period of time. So let's just say someone is six years old and the rapture happens. Well, by the time the great tribulation is over, assuming they survive it, then uh, they would be 13 years old and certainly probably most likely, unless they have some kind of mental challenge, totally accountable to the Lord. The age of accountability is not given in the Bible for some, it might be seven for others. It might be 10. Uh, God is uh, uniquely deals with each person and their c- capabilities to understand and to grasp and so forth. But I don't think it's unreasonable to think, that the babies of unbelievers could be left behind. That's one one of the functions. Remember, one of the functions of the great tribulation is to bring people to Christ. And so think of yourself as a mother and you give birth uh, three weeks after the rapture and you bring your little baby into this world and you see the heartache that begins to unfold. And of course, it's, it's like a rheostat. Jesus likened it to birth pangs. Uh, The birth pangs start with the rapture of the church and they progressively get worse. And so the first half of the great tribulation period is relatively mild uh, in the uh, first set of bold judgments in comparison to what will happen in the second half. Now the first half is no uh, easy cakewalk by any respect, but comparatively speaking, Jesus said when the abomination of desolation takes place, And that's an event that happens right in the middle of the seven-year period, the 70-week of Daniel's prophecy. Uh, Both Daniel, John, Jesus all affirmed this time called the time of Great Tribulation. But the Tribulation goes from Great Tribulation to Greater Tribulation after that event transpires, when the Antichrist goes into a rebuilt temple and makes himself out to be God. We're going to be studying that when we... Uh, continue to work through revelation. But when that event happens, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet, he said, then those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. Uh, those who are on the housetop must not go down because really all hell is going to break loose. That's going to be a trigger point and jesus said for then there will be great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will in then he adds unless those days had been cut short no life would have been saved but for the sake of the elect for the sake of believers who are alive during this time jewish and gentile those days will be cut short there will be people who will literally survive most believers will be executed but not all God will allow some to survive. And as the revelation teaches, they will go into the millennial reign of the Messiah in their natural bodies. So one of the functions of the great tribulation period is not just for, you know, God to be up in heaven and say, let's see what else I can throw at him and make him suffer. God is a compassionate God. And he wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The prophet Ezekiel says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So you're a young mom and you've got a one-year-old or a three-year-old and, and you see what's going on in the world and it's a heartbreak and either that tribulation will melt your heart or that tribulation will harden your heart. The same sun that melts the butter hardens the clay. And so people will have various responses. And actually during the first half of the tribulation, uh, a great multitude of people likened to the sands of the seashore that no one can count is uh, are are those who are saved probably the greatest harvest in all of human history is going to happen in the first half but progressively as you move through the 7 year period less and less people respond especially after the midpoint of the tribulation they're called earth dwellers and none of the earth dwellers Uh, end up giving their life to to Christ. Uh, It's not a reference just to people who are physically living on the earth, but kind of the TLO, this life only kind of people whose perspective is on this world only. So, you know, um, all I'm saying to Placido in answering your question is God certainly has not in times past allowed uh, unsaved, uh, the children of unsaved mothers to be exempt From hardship, whether it's in the kingdom of Heshbon in the book Book of Deuteronomy or Bethlehem or when Jericho is attacked, Uh, there have been times all the way through biblical history where children have suffered in a number of historical judgments. And again, if a child dies during that time, the child of an unbeliever, the child is not accountable, assuming they're a young child and not able to understand the gospel yet. All right, great question. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right. Paul from Aiken writes, hello, my wife and I are studying Revelation using your video sermon series. We finally feel like we understand end times and Revelation for the first time. We also feel more urgency to introduce unbelievers to Christ. We're also reading some of the end time novels. In one, the author postulates that children under a certain age will be raptured due to the age of accountability, I think. My question is, if there is clear teaching in Scripture related to whether children who have not yet received Jesus Christ as a personal act of their will will be raptured, kind of a takeoff on what you just said.
1: It is. So a very similar question. And uh, Tim LaHaye, you know, again, he's writing a novel, and he has even people who have heard the gospel prior the rapture becoming believers and his argument theologically is that because after the rapture of the church there's a small space of time we don't know if it's hours days or weeks before the 70th week of daniel starts and once the 70th week of daniel begins then you can count off the 42 months that will ultimately After the 70th week uh, at some time after no one knows the day or the hour, but a short time after the second coming of Christ happens. So uh, the the rapture is imminent. Of course, it can happen at any moment. The second coming is prophetically driven. Certain prophecies must happen for the second coming of Jesus to take place from heaven. But again, a similar question and LaHaye takes some interesting positions on a few of these issues. The Bible is silent on it, but it's not silent on the fact, as I just stated to the question that came from Massachusetts, that there are biblical historical examples where children are not exempt from sufferings uh, that come on the judgments of adults. And it's just uh, a consequence of a uh, man's rebellion and sticking his fist in the face of God almighty and ignoring him. But let me just say to Paul and Ake, and I'm excited that one you're watching the series and some of you may not know that there is a search the scriptures phone app and you can get all of the revelation sermons found there at search the or on the phone app at the app store, you can download it and you can subscribe to the various podcasts each time a new message comes out But what is very encouraging to me is that the book of Revelation and your study of it is motivating you to tell others about the Lord Jesus, because uh, really we're seeing in the day that we live in days of ungodliness that seems to be growing exponentially, just the opposite happening with believers. More and more believers who are consumed with the entertainments of the world, with their Uh, phones and computers and iPads and Facebook pages, but not with the souls of men and women and boys and girls. And that's sad, but that's part of the reason America is sinking and with it, the rest of the world is people are not passionately consistently, faithfully being good stewards of the gospel and telling others about Christ. I'm doing a Wednesday night series and we've just cracked the door on it and it will run all the way through this month and next month where I'm training people how to share their faith. And it will also be online, but if you can come physically, it will be extremely helpful for you to get the on hands training. And so if you haven't led anyone to Christ in the last couple of years, you should maybe consider coming to this Wednesday night series called witnessing without fear, because a lot of Christians, you know, they want to lead people to Christ, but they've never done that. And uh, sometimes they're not really sure what to say or how to respond to objections or what a person really needs to hear for them to bow their heart and call upon Christ in faith. And so these are things that we're examining in this Wednesday night series, so I invite you out to that. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next
0: one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and a caller just dictated their question, uh, but we'll get to that right after we get to a live caller whom we give preference to. So let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call.
1: Happy to. What's your question today?
2: Okay, with every, uh, I guess the government uh, uh, ended the shutdown, and with all the things going on in government, um, whether it be fighting for... Uh, the Democrats want universal health care. Uh, there's all these other things, entitlements, etc. I know you and others have mentioned that the role of government is to keep the order and prevent chaos. Uh, I'm guessing a lot of this started maybe as far back as uh, Roosevelt or, or others. But I was just wondering, you know, what is what is the biblical principle of? what the government should or should not do, whether it be health care or immigration or whatever.
1: It's a great question. And if someone wants to study this in a little more detail, they might want to go to my series on the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 13, I deal with not only our subjection to government and when and when, when that should take place and when it shouldn't, but also what really is the role of government. But you actually set it and you hit on the key principle a function of government that God gives. He says in the book of Romans, the 13th chapter, um, he makes this statement for rulers are not a, a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same for it. Rulers governments are a minister of God. He says to you for good, But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So the function of government is to basically praise and uphold good behavior. And that positive side sometimes is done more effectively at times than others. But its principal function is not just to praise good behavior, but to put down or to judge and here he uses the symbol of the sword, which was a symbol of authority, bad behavior. And so the government, because we live in a fallen world with fallen sinful people are to primarily focus on this. And let's take the most recent shutdown. You know, the, the arguments concern, you know, people who have come into our nation, maybe they're brought as little children and so on and so forth. And, and, uh, and so some of um, Democrats and Republicans you know won 't vote for a particular bill to reopen the government, or they obviously haven it a temporary measure uh, until you know certain needs they feel are met and so while the government's shut down, the military aren 't receiving a paycheck. the military 's funding is frozen. And of course, just to go through that whole process, it was reported yesterday, it costs our U.S. government $900 million. Look, that's a lot of money to me, uh, $900 million just to shut things down, to put the brakes on, and now they have to open it all back up. And I'm not sure there are costs associated with that, but that was the cost of the shutdown. And so the function of the government is to deal with the military. I was dealing with my son. He's a captain in the Marine Corps and he says, dad, you just can't believe how underfunded we are. And I actually went out to where he was functioning and operating and looking at some of this equipment with, you know, broken this and broken that and they need money and they're waiting on it and things that need to be fixed and they're underfunded. And, and, and then when you tell some dear soul who is serving our nation and protecting our freedom, In some place that they're not going to get their paycheck and they're wondering, you know, about their family back home or whatever that, that that to me is just a travesty and that shouldn't happen. And we do have a warped perspective on what the role of government is. It's to protect the people. And more and more, we've just opened the doors up to people to come into our nation who don't necessarily respect our values. Listen, God gave us a biblical precedent in the Torah, in the first five books. Israel was to have compassion on the alien in the land. But the alien in the land had to submit to the rules and laws of Israel. And if they didn't, there were consequences. And so when we open the door to immigrants to come into our country who don't necessarily embrace our values, we're going to see what's happening in Europe. People are coming unglued in Germany now because they've let so many Muslims into the nation who are fundamentally changing the fabric of the Germans people's values. And if we do this in America and we let people in the door who don't embrace our constitution, then we're making a huge mistake we're we're cutting our feet out from underneath us and given enough time we will lose our american values the reason the american constitution and the longest standing democracy in human history has held on to its own is because it's driven by a certain set of judeo-christian values and when you lose those then you do tremendous damage and so look there are westernized muslims fine let them come in assuming they are willing to embrace the constitution and many are, but a lot of the Muslims who want to come into this country don't want to embrace our constitution. They want to bring Sharia law to the U S and they want to have their, you know, their values represented. And that will fundamentally ruin our country. And when we have people who came in good faith on a visa and they did not honor the visa, and they broke the American law, and they overstayed their visa, they should be asked to leave and get back in line. Because if someone won't honor the law of the land, and if we have political leaders who say the laws don't matter, then you really have chaos. So the role of government is not first to educate people, it's not first to provide health insurance. First and foremost, it is to protect the people by putting up good and putting down evil. Now we might build roads as the interstate system was, you know, introduced if I remember by Eisenhower as part of our national security so that we could move military equipment across the nation at much more easily than we could have before the interstate system was built. So okay, I I get that, but the primary function of government is not to educate the people and provide health care and retirement systems and things that, you know, Woodrow Wilson and FDR brought in with a new slant. And and now I think we have people who want to really change the fundamental role of government. And they want all these illegal immigrants to come in because they know they're going to vote for their party and vote for their value system. And so they're not really valuing our Constitution and our constitution is based. It's an incredible document. And the reason I believe God's honored it, because if you've ever studied the constitution, sad thing is most Americans have never read it. And the sad thing is, is our institutions of higher learning don't want people to read it. Uh, there is actually a law on the books in the state of South Carolina that says every institution of higher learning that receives, you know, state and federal funds in this state must teach um, <clears throat> six credit hours of the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, so that some can't misinterpret the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And, do you know, that a lot of these uh, presidents in of these universities here in South Carolina have just kind of said, we're not doing that. And I had a meeting with the governor not long ago, and I mentioned it to him, and he didn't even know there was a law on the books, but he was very interested in it. And so we have senators who have been confronted with this, and they don't want to make the folks at USC or Clemson or these other institutions mad because they get free football tickets, and they're being bought out in other ways. And it's sad. And so we need to be in tune with what is actually happening in our state, in Columbia, and there's some good organizations like Palmetto Family where you have um, born-again Christians who are trying to represent our values uh, up here in the state of North, of South Carolina. So we need to be in tuned. Uh, it's our responsibility to be good citizens. And part of that, since we live in a gov- government that is for the people, by the people, we need to be engaged in making sure that our values are heard because someone's values are going to be heard but just step back and remember the principal function of government is not to give you food stamps. The principal service that they are to give to you is your protection. And when we fail there, we're failing miserably.
0: Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And a caller came in with another question somewhat related to our earlier ones. They say that in Proverbs twenty three fourteen, parents are told to not hold back discipline from that child and rescue his soul from Sheol. Uh, This caller would like to know if children die of illness or are called suddenly, uh, killed suddenly rather, do they go to heaven and at what age are they accountable?
1: It's a great question. And so the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. And so here in the book of Proverbs, as you quote Proverbs 23 and verse 14, he's talking about uh, the discipline that parents should administer, even corporal, not child abuse. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he'll not die. You shall strike him with the rod, not your hand, not your belt, not some paddle that the kids play with, but the rod. God had a specifically different, separate instrument in which to administer corporal discipline. You don't, spank your child with your hand. The same hand that you reach out to embrace them and love them is not the hand you spank them with. So God gave a a separate instrument. And because foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, the Bible says the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And you'll keep his rescue, his soul from Sheol. And if you've been with us in our study of the revelation, we've looked at a number of comparable terms to describe the, uh, places of judgment, terms like Tartarus, terms like the abyss, terms like the lake of fire, terms like uh, Sheol, terms like Hades. Sheol is still in existence. The Greek equivalent is Hades. And some days, someday Hades will turn into the lake of fire. But if an unbeliever dies, they go to Sheol. So what he's saying to parents is, look, you have a you have a responsibility to discipline your child. Now I'm against child abuse, obviously, and anybody that would hurt a child, they should be, they should suffer the severest of consequences, but that doesn't diminish the fact that God calls for corporal discipline. And if you're not sure what that looks like or how to administer it, you might want to come to my course on parenting or listen to it when the podcast become available. It will start the Wednesday night after Easter here in 2018. It's called Biblical Parenting is what I'm going to entitle that course. But your goal is to, one, uh, shape shape the will without crushing the spirit. And so part of shaping the will is because foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. Sometimes you have to administer corporal punishment and you have to teach that child to submit. But ultimately, you want to reach their heart with the gospel, you want to lead them to Christ, listen, it is far easier to raise a child that's born again than one is not. So it's not just simply putting a fence around them and, you know, training them like a a dog so that the dog responds to this command or that command, because someday the fence will be removed. And if you haven't reached the heart, then you really haven't done your job as a parent. And so it's very important that we reach the heart, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I think one of the greatest forms of child abuse that's happening in the United States is parents who are not doing that, who are ignoring uh, this admonition, many because they're lost, but some Christian parents are very flippant when it comes to even things like the Lord's day, God's people need to be together on the Lord's day and the evangelical church is fed a lot of problems where we segregate the children out. Listen, if a child is old enough to give you their name, phone number, and physical address, which usually is a requirement to graduate from kindergarten, then they're old enough to be in the worship service with you. You say, well, my, my kids don't listen to me. They're too restless in a wor- worship service. Well, then then you need to learn how to train your child up so that they can sit through a worship service. And obviously a five-year-old sits through it differently than an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old, but you have to begin somewhere. And so a lot of parents are just thrilled when the kids are at the age of five, go to children's church or in some churches do it all the way through middle school. And now some of the mega churches do it all the way through high school. You don't go to worship with your parents when you should see them worshiping, when you should worship together as a family so that you can discuss the things the pastor is teaching. And no, you you go and worship with a group of high school students and some youth pastor who's leading you. Uh, That's not God's pattern. God actually has a pattern of how worship should take place on the Lord's day. And children, we require, we ask parents, again, we can't put a gun to their head, but by the time they're five, we ask them to bring their children to the worship service. And some say, oh, but they get a great Sunday school lesson that's catered to their age. Well, you should come both hours. It's the Lord's day all day. And some parents do their children a disservice. And I say the worst form of child abuse today in America is spiritual neglect. And now, according to Barna, approximately 80 percent, 80 percent of the children, 12 and under, don't even go to church anymore in America. And so we're seeing this godless generation that is being raised up. And I was actually commenting on this last Wednesday night as I was Uh, dealing with how to give away your faith and how to share the gospel. And I was telling them that I'm going to use a booklet that is very different from what was used 20, 25 years ago, because people have no biblical context. I meet people 18, 19, 20 years old, young Marines who visit our church and someone's reached out to them. And I asked them some questions about Adam and Eve, and they don't know anything about Adam and Eve. They don't even know whether or not they ate the fruit. So we have to step back because we live in a society of total biblical illiteracy. Anyway, that was a great question. Let's go on to our next. I think we have a live caller who's been patiently waiting.
0: We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Reading in Exodus this morning, Pastor Brogy,
2: and I came to the part where the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he sought to kill him, and Moses' wife quickly Circumcised Moses' sons and quenched God's anger. I'm just curious, at that point, did Moses know about the covenant with Abraham with circumcision? And was that why God's anger did? I mean, MacArthur in my study Bible seemed to, you know, he wrote that that's why God's anger burned because of the circumcision not taking place. And I'm just a little curious about
1: that. No, I think uh, John MacArthur is absolutely correct on that, that Moses had ignored a biblical responsibility. Now, there is some debate over why he ignored it. Maybe his wife, who came from a different background but was a believer in Yahweh, and so Moses married a Cushite— Uh, Maybe she didn't like the idea of her son being circumcised and he yielded to the pressure of his wife. We don't know. Again, it would be, it's an argument from silence and we certainly wouldn't want to be dogmatic on that. But circumcision was very, very important. And in my series on Romans, I do a whole message on circumcision at the end of Romans two that you might want to listen to. And it was a small little bloody rite that was done on the eighth day but it was a reminder to people, even among other things, that without the shedding of blood, you can't approach God. Uh, blood atoned in a temporary way uh, for people's sin in an ultimate way, it was the blood of Christ that ultimately can only take away sin. But still, it was an it was circumcision was to a Jew what baptism is to the Christian. It was really our confession of faith, and so for Moses not to do that. And his wife, obviously aware of the problem, and that makes me think that maybe as a Cushite, she had been putting pressure on Moses for this not to have been done. But yes, clearly he knew about it. Uh, He knew the Abrahamic covenant, that on the eighth day, initially it was Abraham and all of his servants, and after that, on the eighth day, every male child was to be circumcised. And she obviously knew the source of God's judgment and so immediately uh, went on to do what should have been done when they were eight days old. Of course he knew it because he writes the first five books we call the Torah or the Pentateuch, Penta meaning five. And God very clearly articulates the role of circumcision. But that's a whole sermon in itself and I have an hour long sermon on it if you want to really explore the subject, go to the Romans 2 series. I think it's the last message in Romans 2. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. Very good.
0: Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. And a uh, caller says that he and his wife have been exercising lately, and his wife is now looking into yoga. Is yoga a good type of exercise for born-again Christians?
1: Well, uh, you might want to go to our church website, and I did a Message on Hinduism it was actually a message that I uh, preached at an Answers and Genesis conference with Ken Ham. There were five speakers, and myself was w- one and uh this past summer out there at the ark and we did a an apologetics conference on world religions, and my responsibility was hinduism and Of course, many people have not thought it through, but Hinduism basically is the source of yoga. And so um, when we think of yoga, think Hinduism. And if you speak with people here in our country who are committed Hindus, they will tell you that the number one most critical tool that they have in reaching Americans with Hinduism is yoga. So yes, it's more than just some kind of physical contortion to relax your body you're opening yourself up into a spiritual realm. Now I've met Christians obviously who say, well, I don't use a Hindu mantra or whatever. And I think about the Lord and look, uh, we are called to abstain from every appearance of evil. And so when Christians even go to a yoga class that again, it's rooted in Hinduism in the Hindu yogis in our country, will tell you that their number one recruiting tool to reach Americans with Hinduism is yoga. And it is a tool. And listen, people think it's harmless. People thought it was harmless when they created an idol to represent some God they believed in. And Paul's argument in his letter to the Corinthians is, well, that piece of stone or glass that you shaped to represent your God is not a God at all. For there's only one God But people are not actually, Paul argues, uh, worshipping an idol. They're worshipping demons. Because behind the idol, there's demon activity. And behind yoga, I believe there are demonic forces that are at work in these days. And they represent doctrines of demons that the Bible said would happen in latter times. There are two critical terms that God uses. One is the last days, which began on the day of Pentecost and that is a term that can refer to any day since the church was birthed some 2000 years ago as they came out of the upper room 120 that's when the last days began according to the apostle peter in acts 2 and one of the reasons that's an appropriate term to describe the church age is because the bible has always taught the imminent return of of jesus that nothing prophetically could have needed to happen for Jesus to come back. Uh, He could have come back a week after the church was established. If he so chose to, Uh, there are all kinds of prophecy that needs to take place for the second coming to unfold. And that uh, there's a, so there's the term last days, but there's another term that's very important and it's called the latter times. And it's used by Daniel and it's used by the apostle Paul as well. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times. And so latter times is a very specific term that's introduced to us in the book of Daniel and some of the other prophets like Ezekiel use it. And it refers to those days that precede not the rapture, but the second coming. And so the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith and it's not from faith, but it's articular, the faith meaning the body of truth we call the Bible. I just got something in the mail from cooperative Baptists who, in my view are heretical. And we have some cooperative Baptist churches like title Creek and the Baptist church of Buford and some other, on the other side who give money to that organization which is an apostate organization. But the way the devil works is he comes as an angel of light. He disguises himself. And in their most recent newsletter that they were promoting yoga and yoga classes. And listen, that that's evil. Churches shouldn't be holding yoga classes because you're engaging you're paying attention with deceitful spirits, but they've fallen away from the faith. Cooperative Baptists deny the inerrancy of the Bible. Oh, but they say we believe the Bible's inspired and inerrant. They've redefined terms, just like Mormons who say they believe Jesus is the son of God. But so many people today are so ignorant of basic theology because they haven't been taught the Bible. They think they mean the same thing that people have meant historically for 2000 years. So you're really engaging in a realm of of evil. So if you want to study that, go to um, uh, communitybiblechurch.us and you can go into the search bar and type in Hinduism. And you can listen to my uh, 55 minute message that I did on a Wednesday night. And I kind of explore among other things, what is Hinduism? And one, why should we care about Hindus? We should. We should have compassion on the yogi who teaches Hindu classes here in America. Um, Remember, there are over 1 billion people in the world who are Hindus. And when you see someone from India, an Asian Indian, not an American Indian, uh, you can almost guarantee they're a Hindu because over 80% of the people in India are Hindus And then there are some other branches like Jainism and, uh, the Sikhs and so forth that are basically offshoots of Hinduism. And, but the beliefs are very similar all the way through. But when you see someone from India today, there's a good chance, unless they're a born again, Christian, that they are Hindu. And God's called us to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to all nations It doesn't say all countries. It's the word that refers to various ethnicities and God is bringing a lot of people from India here to the United States who are Hindus and we need to reach them with the gospel. You can't, if you don't know just a little bit about Hinduism, but this, um, this sermon that I did will help you to understand what Hindus believe and how to build a bridge into the life of a Hindu to, to win them with the gospel of Jesus Christ.
0: Very good. Our next caller says there are some different opinions on whether or not there was death before sin. For example, animals killing and eating other animals. What does Genesis really say about this?
1: Well, Paul is very, very clear. So there's no debate on this. This is not a a topic uh, or question that people have debated. Uh, Now, we need to know what the Scripture says, but this has never been a point of debate unless someone is a theistic evolutionist. But for those who have traditionally uh, plainly interpreted the word of God, they haven't debated this issue because God makes a, a parallel. Therefore, just as through one man, referring to Adam, sin entered into the world. And so death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. And he compares that with Christ, who through his one act made a provision for all men to be saved. So there's a parallel between the one act of Adam in Romans 5 verses 12 through 21 and the one act of Christ. But he's very clear that through one sin and because we were in and with Adam, the Bible teaches the solidarity of the human race. So you can't say, well, look, it's Adam's fault and that's why we get sick and die. No, you were in the loins of Adam. So when Adam sinned, Romans 5:12 says all sinned. And so sin entered into the world and death through sin. So there was no death in the world prior to the fall. No death in the world prior to the fall. The first death that takes place in all of creative history is after Adam's sins. And Adam, of course, tries to cover his sin with fig leaves. There's all of a sudden a sense that they are naked. They probably were clothed in robes of light as God descriptively describes himself. And all of a sudden the lights went out, so to speak, and they experienced shame and they have a sense of nakedness. So they try to cover over their nakedness that came through their sin. And God said, no, fig leaf religion doesn't work. Man can't deal with his shame and sin through the works of his own hands. And so God slaughtered animals. And so the first death that takes place in all the universe is when God kills animals and he gives them coats of skins, plural. And this, by the way, is why God received Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. Some say, well, Abel gave a less, uh, that Cain gave less of a sacrifice. No, he came on a different basis. God had already revealed that you approach God on the basis of blood. Why? Because blood represents life and the wages of sin is death. And the day you eat from that tree, you will die. And so the day Adam Eight, he immediately died on the inside spiritually. He began to die on the outside physically. And so we're born dying. We're born getting older. We're headed towards the grave. And if the problem's not fixed, the third kind of death the Bible mentions is eternal death. The second death given different terms in the word of God. So death comes into the world through sin. Now, the problem is, is that we now have theistic evolutionists. And so we have some quote unquote Christian apologists who say it doesn't matter if you believe in evolution? Yes, it does. It fundamentally goes against the very vein, grain, and fabric of the Word of God. Uh, now you've got death before the fall, and so you've got billions and billions and billions of years to justify how man got here, and then God somehow creates Adam or evolves into Adam, depending on which theistic evolutionist you're reading, and um, and then sin comes. No, death comes. As a result of sin, there was no death in the universe. The Bible is crystal clear on this. And so unless someone has adopted theistic evolution, which you cannot get from the plain reading of scripture, the Bible is very clear that God created the heavens and the earth. And people say, well, God needed billions of years to pull this off through the evolutionary process. No, that's just man's fallen attempt to explain how we got the world that we're in. And because man wants to suppress the truth that is evident that there's a God who created the world, uh, he has adopted uh, his own system called evolution. If you can't believe that there's a God, or you can't believe that God is able to do what he says, then you have to come up with some other plan. And then Christians, not wanting to be offensive to the evolutionist says, well, God used the process of evolution to create theistic evolution. No, you you can't, you can't teach that and be faithful to the word of God. Either the Bible's true because it is so clear on this issue or it is not. You cannot have theistic evolution. Well, you know, it took a long time to bring about Adam. Well, how is God going to create a new body in the twinkling of an eye? And when God creates the new heaven and the new earth, he's just going to speak it into existence. He's not going to do it in six days like he did with the first heaven and the first earth. God doesn't need any time at all. Uh, There is a reason he took six days. And I cover that in my series on Genesis, but death doesn't happen until after the fall of man. That's really, 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 really important. And if this is a new concept to you, I suggest that you listen to my series on Genesis, especially the first three chapters in the book of Genesis.
0: This caller called back and said they'd like uh, to know what uh, you know about um, John R. W. Stott, who wrote on this subject.
1: Well, John Stott was an interesting fellow. Um, you know, there there are born again Christians who believe in theistic evolution. They're wrong. They're just dead wrong. And John Stott was an Anglican. He pastored a church in London. Um, I heard him speak on one occasion in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and another occasion when he came to Dallas Seminary. Towards the end of his life, John Stott wavered on some issues that he never taught in his earlier ministry. And many were very, very disappointed with him for that. I'm not sure what drove it. John Stott was a single man his whole life. I remember... Uh, reading some of his books. I thought, "How's this guy got time to pastor a church and write all these books? And because he's not one of these pastors who pastors, you know, and preaches once or twice a month and then spends the rest of the time writing. He, he just taught the word of God every week. And then I realized he was single and uh, he was single his whole life. And he cranked out a lot of books, but towards the end, he was a little shaky on a couple of issues like the doctrine of eternal retribution. And many people were very, very disappointed with him on that factor. But um, listen, if you want to understand some just good, solid teaching, I don't think you can beat answers in Genesis and Ken Ham and some of his materials because, you know, he deals with all of the arguments that people have used to counter. And that's why I'm willing to be associated with that organization and speak on their behalf. And. I have done two conferences with them now, and I've written eight different chapters in some of their apologetic books. And because I think they're a great outfit, and uh, they're, they're worth supporting.
0: So that's how the Apostle Paul wrote all those letters.
1: That's right. He I guess was so. <laughs> yeah, he was
0: a single man. Yes. All right. Tracy from Bowie, Maryland, writes: My husband and I are Christians. What does the Bible say about a woman's appearance slash weight? Can a husband ask or even demand his wife? be a certain size or weight, not if he wants to live. <laughs> does it show a lack of respect if the wife does not honor his request?
1: Well, you know, um, some guys have put just some unrealistic expectations on their wives because we live in a sensual society and, and they have some image of beauty that the world has created. We had a, a former model from Victoria's Secrets that, came and spoke at community Bible church. She was engaged in that and she found Christ and she goes around the country and she lectures and she was talking about before they would do these, I don't know, fashion shows, whatever you call them. The process was like eight to 10 hours just to get ready. And it was just, it was just ridiculous. She said it wasn't real life. It wasn't really the way women even look. And so People have this fantasy image in the central society that we live in. Number one, you are to love your wife unconditionally. If you married her and she was 90 pounds and now she's 310, you love her no matter what. That is your role. That is your responsibility. That is your commitment. But you should be concerned about your wife's health, that she be healthy. And sometimes, you know, a woman, say, gets pregnant and she puts on some added weight and And then she, you know, is trying to raise the kids and you come home and you want to go do your thing. But sometimes you need to help your wife and you need to go walking with her and you need to allow her to get some exercise and because your concern should be for her health. And if she is seriously overweight, then you should do what you can to help her to get in shape. And that might mean some sacrifice on your part. Some people have various metabolisms where they can eat, you know, French fries and all kinds of junk food and I gain a pound and other people, they look at it and they add weight. Well, you need to help your wife to eat healthy, eat healthy as a family and to stay healthy. And that's your goal is to be physically healthy. And unfortunately, there are some very thin women who are incredibly unhealthy. And they are actually destroying their skeletal structure that God has given in their body because of dieting plans and other things that they have adopted in this day in order to become like the world wants them to become. So you love that woman unconditionally. And if she has a struggle with her weight, you know, you can't, you can't put a gun to her head. You can't demand you be a certain weight or size you can't make your wife do anything, but you should love your wife into finding the will of God for her life. And part of the will of God is being good stewards of our bodies and taking care of them. And sometimes I would come home from seminary and my wife had the children all day and I would just take them. And so she could go run and, it just invigorated her and she cleared her head and it was just tremendous. Or we'd go, she'd go for walks and she'd take the kids with in a stroller or whatever and have one on her back and, and have another mom and they'd go walk two or three miles and exercise is important in our day because it's very different from the biblical day where Paul can say bodily exercise profits little. Why? Because you had a, You had a built-in exercise system in the first century. You want to go to church? How would you get there? You didn't jump in the car and crank it up. You walked there. You had to saddle the horse and get there. And you didn't throw your, excuse me, clothes in a washing machine. You had to bring them down to the river and Wash him one at a time. And there was kind of a built-in exercise. So context is everything. When Paul says bodily exercise profits little, people say, that's my life first. You know, yeah, I don't have to exercise. And you have to understand that in the first century context where other people, the other end literally worship the body, which obviously was equally wrong.
0: Okay, we've got about three minutes left. Let's see if we can get through this one. It appears there are six references to the office of deacon, singular in Scripture, including four in letters written by Timothy. The other references are a general one in Philippians and a specific one in Romans sixteen, one of Phoebe, a woman. Given the specific use of the word wife by Timothy when laying out qualifications for a deacon in 1 Timothy three two, inferring a deacon would be male, is there disagreement between Paul and Timothy on gender as a qualification for the office of deacon?
1: Well, understand, of course, Paul wrote 1st and 2nd Timothy. So when you're speaking about uh, 1st and 2nd Timothy, you're not referring to books that the Apostle Paul, uh, that Timothy wrote. You're referring to two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. And no, there's no incongruity at all. Uh, God gives the qualifications for a deacon in 1st Timothy chapter 3 And when he spells out those qualifications, there's a lot of things that are uniquely male. Uh, He makes it very clear. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested and so forth. And then there's a little uh, interchange in verse 11. Women must likewise be. Now, the word is gunikos that can mean women in general or wives. Um, The King James and the NIV 84 says the wives of deacons must likewise be. That's certainly interpretive, but I think it's correct contextually because men who are deacons or leaders in the church, there has to be a certain uh, correlating expectation on their wives. And then he says deacons must be husbands of one wife. Now the word deacon has two usages in the New Testament, a technical and non-technical meaning. It's non-technical meaning, uh, at least in our English Bibles, we typically uh, translate it as servant. He that would be great among you must be the servant. Actually, it's the same word, must be the deacon of all. That's what the word deacon means, a servant. And so sometimes there are words that have a technical, non-technical use, like the word apostle. Uh, To be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ and been personally selected by him. And if those two things were true, there would be certain signs, wonders, and miracles that proved it. But yet the term is used to describe someone like Epaphroditus because it means a sent one. That's a non-technical use. And Paul in Romans 16 is um, not dealing with a technical use, but a non-technical use when he describes Phoebe a woman in the church, and she was a godly woman. She was a servant in the church, but I don't think she filled the office of deacon. And interestingly, in Acts 6, select for yourself seven men. It's the word arnir that means men in deference to a woman. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us.